Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. What I saw as a fallacy that you had to have 25 years experience as an investigator before you could go overseas. And there's a dichotomy there that doesn't exist. You need to be able to speak with people and deal with other cultures, be comfortable outside of your own comfort zone. And for me, that doesn't require a long career as an investigator. You need to be able to communicate with people, be comfortable with other cultures. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Today, we're talking with Neil Walsh, who has been working as the chief of the cybercrime, anti-money laundering and counterfinancing of terrorism department of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, UNODC, based in Vienna for the last five years. Neil started out as an investigator in the UK National Criminal Intelligence Service, working on terrorism, organized crime and weapons, and human trafficking. He worked with the FBI in a joint task force in New York after 9-11, and later he moved on to work for four years as the deputy head of the UK's liaison bureau at Europol in The Hague. Neil also had a position in the UK's High Commission in Malta, looking at organized crime, including human trafficking throughout East and North Africa into the Mediterranean. Overall, Neil has spent over 11 years working internationally and is here with us today to share his thoughts and perspectives on international work. Okay. Hi. Good morning, Neil. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Colin. You? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today and and, uh, this Perspectives interview series to talk about your experience uh, working internationally. Um, And I guess the best place to start is just with an introduction. So if you can tell us about, uh, you know, your experience and where you're working and where you've been and all those kind of details, it'd be great. Sure, thanks again for having me. My name is Neil Walsh and I'm the head of cybercrime, anti-money laundering and terrorist financing at the UN Office on Drugs and Crime based in Vienna. I've been here for what feels like a lifetime, but it's just a little bit under five years. And prior to that, I worked in the UK's equivalent of the FBI for 15 years as an investigator, a senior investigating officer working on uh, terrorism, organized crime, weapons trafficking and human trafficking casework. And I was really lucky that during my career, I got in the in sort of policing, I got to serve overseas routinely on specific operations. And it's, uh, it's ironic today, we're recording this on the 11th of September, and I ended up spending a lot of time in New York after the 9-11 attacks and working with the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force for a couple of years. So it uh, that was a formative part of my career 
and then I ended up on a long-term posting to the European Union's intelligence organisation, Europol, based in The Hague, for four years, where I was uh, the deputy head of the UK's Liaison Bureau, so UK police and law enforcement officers uh, working with the organisation. And then after that, I was on a bilateral posting at the UK's High Commission in Malta, looking at organised crime, principally people smuggling, coming through East and North Africa, and terrorism into the Mediterranean. And during that time, actually, during when we were in The Hague, so it was a four-year posting, um, I was there with my wife and then two children. We now have four children, and I've literally no idea how that happened, but it did. So uh, we kind of reached that decision in the middle of the posting in The Hague that we didn't fancy going back to London. We really liked being overseas. I didn't fancy spending a third of my salary each year simply on a train journey where I got to stand on a train at 6am with my head stuck in someone's armpit. So we made the choice to start looking around overseas into the UN, other organisations. And what you will come across if you're looking at a career in the UN is how incredibly slow the recruitment process is. I would love to say it's perfect and it works seamlessly. It doesn't. Uh, we're trying to fix it, but there are so many moving parts in it that are beyond the control of people like me as a hiring manager that it just takes an inordinate amount of time. So I applied for this role or the previous role I had within UNODC in January 2014, but didn't end up joining, physically joining until January 2016. So in that intervening period, finished a posting in The Hague, two days before finishing to move back to the UK where we had a house sorted, kids going into school, we'd already shipped our stuff. I get a phone call telling me that I'm moving to Malta instead. Um, and I seem to be the only person who didn't know that I was moving to Malta to, to be the head of our uh, office there, the head of the office, the only person in the office there. Um, so we ended up moving to the UK for a fortnight whilst my wife and kids stayed there. I went to Malta, found a house, found schools, got set up. They moved across, and then three and a half months into the posting, I get a phone call from the UN saying, hey, that job you applied for 18 months ago, are you ready for it? And uh, I had to make a decision within 24 hours whether to take it or not. Um, I asked my employer, the National Crime Agency, would they give me a secondment? It was a very short answer. The second word was off. So uh, I resigned the next day, worked my notice through until Christmas, and then moved to Vienna. So we moved to four countries in four months with three kids, which is marriage limitingly stupid to do, but it kind of worked itself out. Now that sounds, there's a lot to unpack there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> One or two bits. Wow. Uh, yeah. So uh, four months in four countries is pretty rough, you know, um, yeah, really even, even if you're by yourself, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it has its moments. Yeah, definitely. So you actually, so you got, you kind of have a different career path than some other people that we talked to because you have started within the national service, you know, starting yeah. in your own country and then progressively going, you kind of got exposed to international life Correct. and then you decided that you wanted to transition after you got a flavor of that. Correct. When you were coming up or you were working through your career, starting your career within the UK, how easy was it for you to take part in these international opportunities within your system? I mean, were they just were they coming to you and saying, we're forming a task force, do you want to be a part of it? Or was it something you were applying for internally? Or There was a lot of work where it was regular law enforcement operations that involved international travel because my organization at that time, I was in the international division. So all of our work was focused outside of the UK. 
It could have been counter-narcotics work in Central South America. It could have been terrorism work in the Middle East. It could have been whatever. Um, but everything that we looked at was sort of beyond the UK. So that gave me opportunities to travel. And I really liked it. I liked working with other countries, other cultures, and getting exposed to that. But in terms of getting a long-term overseas posting, it's incredibly difficult. You often see in law enforcement, and this is especially true in the UK, um, and I've never understood this, that a lot of those who were going overseas were going over just towards the end of their careers, which I never quite understood, and that there was this, what I saw as a fallacy, that you had to have 25 years experience as an investigator before you could go overseas, and there's a dichotomy there that doesn't exist. You need to be able to speak with people and deal with other cultures, be comfortable outside of your own comfort zone. And for me, that doesn't require a long career as an investigator. You need to be able to communicate with people, be comfortable with other cultures. So I was lucky enough that uh, some of the operations I was involved in, especially post 9-11, had me traveling to the Middle East, traveling to the US. And then uh, there was a lot of European travel in counter-human trafficking work. And then uh, it really went from there. So it, for me, once I got exposed to it, I wanted to do it, but getting into it was incredibly difficult. And whenever I was posted overseas, the first time I was 29, and I was, I was the youngest overseas liaison officer in my organization by some 12 years. So whenever I joined the UN, eventually the role, the level that I've come in at, I come in as a P5, which uh, sort of is running a section or a department and just looking around the organization, most of my peers in this in this rank of this level are a good 10, 15 years older. So, um, again, I don't quite understand that, um, but it seems to be the way it works out sometimes. Yeah, that's interesting. You had mentioned this kind of cultural intelligence piece, right? So the ability to, the ability to work and, and communicate across cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that's so important, especially in the international sphere and especially international organizations? I think when we're working, if you have a job either in in your own government or even in private sector, if you are solely focused on your own country and your own experience, it's really easy to get into an echo chamber where you believe everything is true about your own place. And that, I think, is often where the basis of prejudice and stereotypes are formed. And we really need to be, all of us, aware of what our own stereotypes are. We all have them. We just have to... I think when we become conscious of them, then we can address them and try and eliminate or at least minimize unconscious bias in our own decisions and our own stereotypes and and try to address those. There were conversations that I had with cops or federal agents or government officials around the world often made me think, well, bloody hell, why did I not think about that and try and address and understand my own shortcomings? And then moving to The Hague uh, in Europol, there were 35 countries based in the building, 28 EU member states, plus another seven third parties, was the US, Colombia, lots of others. And when you're working in a multilateral organization, you really come to realize how, in many ways, your own experience is so limited to your own cultural uh, reach, even within your own countries. So I come from the north of Ireland, hence the, the silly accent and the very high pace of speed of speech. But whenever I moved to London as a 20-year-old, I had to change my accent. I had to focus on enunciating better and not talking like Northern Irish and really fast because like, no one would understand what the hell I was saying. So once you take that to another level of language, of nuance, of culture, of society... We see where conflict comes from, and it's 
so much of our work, my work now, is relationship building and relationship management. I guess these are the sorts of skills that I should apply at home because my wife's French. We have four kids born in three other countries. And a lot of that is just getting past the confusion of one or two words that might mean something specific to me, might mean something totally different to her. And then when you apply that at an international level, you see countries getting really hacked off with each other. And it might simply be a loss of nuance in language or in communicating a message right the way through to how do we reach warfare or the risk of state-on-state conflict. So all of that intrigued me. My degrees, um, I studied psychology and criminology at uni. Um, I wanted to be a cop. And that was all I wanted to do. And when I joined the National Crime Agency or National Criminal Intelligence Service, as it was then, I thought, that's me, 30 years, 35 years of doing this, I'll be a happy boy. And then you get exposed to other things and think, actually, I quite like this overseas stuff. I like understanding, trying to understand other cultures and trying to make things a little bit better. And really what we do now is, for me and my staff as diplomats, is trying to de-escalate risk And I think, I genuinely think 95% of that is simply communication and trying to help people to step back and understand and appreciate each other's points of view. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. I mean, it's, I often use an example that in some languages around the world that there's a, you know, there's the same word that's used for both safety and security. Yeah. And fundamentally to us, you know, we understand safety is one thing and security is something else. But when you're communicating and you're trying to explain um, if you're doing so, so kind of host nation development capacity building, you know, and you're saying, okay, you need occupational safety and health programs. And they say, yeah, we have security. There's a security guard right there. Yeah. And you go, okay, no, there's actually, this is something else completely, you know, yeah. and that is, it's very nuanced, but you're right. People just, it, there's massive assumptions being made when we communicate. And there's also like these, um, but the, the interpretation and what they think you're trying to say is really, is, is quite different. And it's really a skill you have to develop. Yeah. Um, but coming back to when you kind of first started working internationally, what was it that kind of the sparked the interest? Was there a specific point in time that you remember where you you kind of said, you know, this is this is it. This is like where I wanted to work and this is the experience I wanted to have. Yeah. And it was for me, it was on the 9-11 investigation that traveling to the U.S. at a time where, you know, you and I both know what the country went through at that time. And I remember I'd been in New York for a couple of days working very closely with the FBI on some really high risk elements um, post the original attacks where we were trying to identify others within networks that were posing significant risk to the US and to the UK. And I was standing one night in a bar with an FBI agent. We were just talking about how things had happened and how the city, and this we were in the middle of Manhattan, and you could still see smoke rising from the south of the island. And you know how many weeks and months that went on from. And talking about it and how the city had changed and how people had reacted. And there was a guy sort of a couple of stools away from us at the bar who looked over and uh, you know, with a really broad New York accent sort of said, hey, what, what are you guys doing? What do you do here? And we talked a little bit about, you know, we're, we're policing, we're federal agents and we're working on the investigation. And he said, well, that's bloody cool. Thank you for doing what you do. And it was that moment where I really realized that we all have skill sets that we can bring. And if we have the opportunity and the, the honor to be able to work with another country and try and help them through a period where things have gone horribly wrong, then that's, that's a pretty nice way to do things. And everything I saw, so throughout my career from then on made me 
realise that if we simply look at our own national box, we're missing 90% of the story and that we can have greater impact in looking at the source of a problem rather than putting a surveillance team out following a courier carrying 20 grams of cannabis as opposed to looking at what is the societal problem, what is the legal problem, what is the economic problem that is causing this thing to happen. And I just enjoyed speaking to people as well and trying to understand and learn more from them. And it, I think it grows grows one individually if we have that opportunity to understand other cultures and then moving from New York to working in the Middle East at this time when the war was happening and where there was real risk around this. And I remember sitting, having a chat with a gentleman who had a PhD in geology and was now out of a job because the tourist trade to his country had stopped overnight. And then listening and understanding and my first exposure to an Islamic country and going in with my perceptions and my stereotypes and just having those completely destroyed. And, you know, it's, it kind of re- it reminded me of when I was at school. It's very, very Shakespearean. That, um, Shakespearean play, The Merchant of Venice, there's a scene where uh, a character who is Jewish and is being abused says, if you prick us, do we not bleed? And that recognition that we're all the same under this, doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter where you come from, we all just want to have a safe, secure life we want to make our lives a little bit better and just go on through that and i don't think that happens if we don't understand each other we don't understand our different life experiences and when we start to do that then we can make things a little bit better yeah it's really interesting for when people want to pursue an international career because it's i think one of the main problems like you're saying is that a lot of people live inside this bubble of five or ten kilometers right and this is like their entire work and their entire existence and they go to that work and they stay home. Bad. i just want to make that that's not bad that's just a different experience right yeah and so and that's fine and that, that works well for a lot of people because a lot many many millions of people do not work internationally but the interesting thing is that once you actually get a glimpse of what's happening outside in different countries that there's a certain appeal to that and there's a certain you you really get hooked on this idea of hearing other perspectives. And I, I think it's almost in, to a certain extent, it's not just a cultural aspect, which we talked about and, and, and kind of this experiential part, but it's also from the aspect of, you know, you're coming from a very specific career field. And then, so what is it like in other countries and similar career fields? So you get to kind of this, this puzzle behind going to different countries and you go, and you have a, you have a kind of a, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head, but you have kind of, you have a 50, 60, 70% understanding of what they should be doing. But there's this other element of 20, 30, 40% they're doing is completely culturally and and nationally unique to what they're doing. And you learn a lot from that. Absolutely, You absorb a lot because we are kind of, I come from a crisis management background. So we're kind of indoctrinated in the U.S. as far as emergency management agency, FEMA, and then down to state and local level and these structures and national response frameworks and all these things. But but then, you know, you leave the country and that, that stops at the border. Yeah, and so you have an understanding of what the role of insurance is in society. But what about if you go to a society that has no insurance and you go, oh, wait, what? <laughs> you know, and it makes you, it forces you to think and it forces your creativity, which I also find fascinating. Yeah, totally agree. And it, it can make you really uncomfortable. I think one, I always say to my guys here, once you reach that point of being comfortable, being uncomfortable, then things become much easier. You cannot do everything all the time. You're not supposed to know everything all the time. And if you think you do, 
get out of that job because you shouldn't be there. The moment you think, I know all of this, I've done everything here, then that's the moment to resign because no one does. And you shouldn't expect yourself to, to feel like that at any point. And it's, uh, I think that's, again, where getting different international experiences really still challenge me every day. I had a, had a conversation with my boss a couple of days ago and said, are we the bad guys? Or, you know, are we the one, we screwed this up that badly? And it's, it's, I think it's the answer we came to, the conclusion we came to was no, we don't think we are. But it's still, I think it's healthy to have those conversations sometimes, especially, especially now, right? The world is screwed right now. There are some crazy things going on. It has become right wing populism, bilateral, unilateral activity where we seem to have lost that ability to try and speak to each other in a, in a way that is understanding and polite. And with that creates enormous global risk. And it still comes back to the basis of this is communication. Definitely. And I, I think that, you know, to a certain extent, coming back to your example, you know, are we the bad guys or not? I mean, we could write an entire book about international <laughs> aid and security assistance, yeah. and whether it's having the intended effect or not. You know, there's, there's so much, you know, in my time with oh, NATO, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you could sit there and, and you could break down if you know how when you have enough experience, you can look at these things more analytically, more objectively. And you say, is our sheer presence changing the environment that we're operating in? You for know, the better, you have these, for the worse. Exactly. And you have these kind of nuanced conversations where it's extremely interesting. I had a conversation with the, the deputy administrator of UNDP, the UN Development Program. So the, the deputy head of this. And uh, he said the biggest the, open, the biggest open secret in development is we don't know if it works. And it's, you know, a lot of the work that, that my staff do is capacity building. So trying to help cops, prosecutors and judges to do stuff better or to build their ability to do things. And we are entirely funded by donor governments who give us money to do things. And sometimes the measurement of that that they want is insane. You know, it's how do you measure prevention? And I, somebody, maybe one of your brightest on this, can tell me the answer to this because no one's given me an answer yet that I'm comfortable with. How do you measure something that didn't happen? How do you know that from having a, a conversation with an individual five years later, they didn't do something that would have created, you know, it's a, a little bit the butterfly flapping its wings in the Amazon. Does it lead to a change in, uh, in weather patterns in, uh, in Australia? How do you measure that? And I, I think it's fascinating conversations to have, but also sometimes we have to sit back and say, we need to try this because the alternative of doing nothing is not right. Yeah, that's interesting. I've had those conversations before as well. And in, in, in this context, uh, we were talking about building integrity programs uh, and, and the conversations I had. And so I got, you know, it's kind of, okay, go forth and build integrity. And you go, okay, thank you. That's, it'll be done by five o'clock. Then we can <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let me just change the entire society and culture overnight, you know? <laughs> yeah, no uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's interesting. But you mentioned a couple of things, which allows us to kind of segue, I think, into the, the back to the career focus again, which is, you know, you, you mentioned there was a couple of hard decisions for you, I think. Um, so one was like you, you obviously had you resigned from the police service. That's a pretty big after so many years. That's a pretty big yeah. step. You know, and took a bit of courage to do that, especially going into what we all know in the international. <laughs> exactly. Especially going into what we know as the international community, which is largely, as you mentioned, donor based, project based. Yep. You know, we all know it's a one year contract on a three year program or whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. You know, what, um, looking back on that now, I mean, obviously it was a good decision for you because you're sitting yeah. where you are. Uh, what were your thoughts back then? 
about jumping in with both feet, I guess. It's a great question. We were, we had been in Malta for four months, which in the Southern Mediterranean, it's a small country and we loved it there. The quality of life was amazing. Um, I loved the job that I was doing. It gave me exposure to heads of state in a way that I never would have anticipated that um, in the first eight weeks of being there, I'd met the British Prime Minister twice, the Queen once, and 50 other heads of state. And that sort of thing is like, wow, that's what I, I really enjoy this. Now, actually, I seem to be okay at doing it. I haven't caused a war yet, so that's a good thing. But when the opportunity for the UN came up, it was, was it a risk? Yes, uh, without doubt. But I knew that when I finished my posting in Malta, I would definitely be going back to London. And the way my organization worked then would be on demotion. So I would have gone from running my own thing overseas for eight years to suddenly being back at a lower rank in the middle of something. And that just wasn't massively appealing. So that, that, allowed us to take that decision i always say us because it's really my wife and i take these decisions together because it impacts all of us right we it's not just about one person on on their career so i thought around 15 years in i've got another probably 15 25 to go within this if i want to or i can go and try something else and yes there's risks around it but in my career i've had some instances where my life had been under pressure or at risk from some of the stuff I was doing um, and also uh, I'd had cancer when I was 26 and told that I might die from that so really that changed my perspective I know it's a bit of a cliche but that made me think of things differently that if you have an opportunity and you're in the right place bloody hell go for it because you never know what life is going to come at you with and it was the right decision to take and if I think that's where even now, where I love the job I'm in now, but if another opportunity came up to move around the UN, then I'd be I'd be likely to take that because we're, we're slightly nomadic like that. That it's nice to go and try other things and experience different things. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. So a risk is just a part of perspective, right? And and it's based on your life experiences. Uh, and so maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but. You, I, I, I never believe in regrets. I don't regret anything. There are decisions I might take differently if I had my time again, but I don't want to reach, you know, if I am lucky enough and based on my crazy health situation, this is less likely, but if I'm lucky enough to become an old man, I don't want to look back and think, oh, I wish I'd done that thing that I had the opportunity to do rather than taking the safe option. The safe option is always to do nothing. Stick in the job that you've managed to find that pays you okay and the likelihood of getting fired or losing that is, is minimal. But that's just not me. It's not us. And uh, I quite like the risk element of it. So it's another mm -hmm. risk to take. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's a certain personality goes with that, that with people that want to work internationally that they're kind of willing to go out and work on these. <laughs> Yeah, people are willing to, to take a risk for the experience, right? It's a short-term risk of, you know, 12 months or whatever the case is. Um, but how did you come to find these positions? So, I mean, when you were first starting out, it seems like, you okay, you were kind of laterally moved. You were supporting a, a different agency and things like that. And then, you know, this UN position comes up. And but the UN thing was purely by chance where I had reached the point in The Hague where I thought I want to go for promotion, I want to get into a senior leadership role. And I, I sort of critically looked at my own strengths and weaknesses, realized I was lacking some skill set that I wanted to build. And I, I just through a friend of my wife happened to be a business coach. 
and a career mentor. So I hired her and had a sort of a mentoring session for an hour a week for 10 weeks, looking at building some skill sets that I didn't feel that I had. And uh, from that, we just, she'd said, well, what's, you know, what's something you've always wanted to do? And I thought, I've always had a fantasy of working for the UN, but I have no idea what it does or how I would get in. And she said, well, actually, my husband works for the UN. And then we had a conversation about that. And I started just looking at the careers website. And we have a careers.un.org website. And I had a look at it. And she said, I had looked at some, some, uh, some vacancies there. And my coach, she said, you're looking at the wrong level. You need to be looking three or four above that because that's the level you're operating at. So I started doing that. And I put in, I saw this advertisement for uh, UN Office on Drugs and Crime, never heard of it, and uh, for running what was a global program on cybercrime. And I'd done some cyber work in my in my role at Europol. I thought, and I looked at the job description and thought, yeah, I could do all of that. I haven't got a hope in hell. But I put the application together on Christmas Day 2015, um, stuck it in, or sort of 2013, applied in January 2014, and then Eventually, after a very long time, uh, went through a very long written exercise and then an interview with seven people on the panel and then heard nothing for about nine months. And then eventually, here we are, job offered, resigned, came here, and uh, the rest is kind of history from it, really, but there was no plan behind it at all. Yeah, that seems to be a common theme. Um, there was no plan for me to work internationally until it happened. Yeah. I- and it's also, in my experience, it's been a year. A year is about the time when you, from the time of the announcement closing yep. and you apply to the time that you would be actually signing a contract. A good day, it works within a year. And I guess some of my advice to any of you who are watching this, who are interested in doing this sort of career, there's there's two paths. If I, so I'm sitting in Vienna now. Most of my staff are based overseas, but I've got 14 here in Vienna. Um, everybody's a different nationality with different backgrounds and experience. Some have come in very early in their careers. Others, like me, came in sort of mid-career. And there's differences in how this can play out. And I think something to think about really carefully is, do you see yourself wanting to be in a senior leadership position at some point? And if you do, I would strongly suggest not joining the UN at a younger age because I see so many people around the building here who haven't progressed beyond maybe one or two promotions. And that has maybe taken them 20 years to be able to achieve that. That's not because they're not good enough. That's not because they're not worthy of it. But the moment you're in the system and you're going up against external candidates who are doing the thing now, as opposed to you doing the thing that you did 10 years ago or have never done, then your ability to be that attractive candidate, and I think, I, I don't know in your views, Kyle, but it's all, the external candidates often look much more interesting because they have a different breadth of experience. So I think where, you know, I've got some staff come in on a young professionals program called the YPP, it's actually advertised right now, um, and that some countries participate in that and brings um, younger, sort of under the age of 32 into the organisation. I think one of the there's a major challenge within the UN, and I'm working on a number of bits with New York to try and change this. But the way we we insist on the background that people need to have to apply, you must have a master's degree, you must have X number of years of experience. And for me, I've often I've said this really publicly. That's crap. That's a really stupid way to do it. I live in a country where the head of state is 34. 
right? So he'd be lucky enough to get through a P3 interview by the years of experience that we ask for. Years of experience is only relevant if that experience is good. If you have had lots of years of experience of making poor decisions, the longer you've been making those poor decisions makes you worse at that job. So we need to be able to articulate that better. And the master's level of academia, I am unconvinced, should be the only way. I'm not saying having a master's is bad. It's great. But we lose applicants. We lose potentially really good applicants because they don't have a master's. One of my staff, she's in our G staff, which is our general support staff. She should be running the show. But she left. She dropped out of uni to take care of an ill parent, which is an enormously empathetic decision to make. And she's incredibly smart. She's vastly smarter than I am and she'd be running the business. But we have these glass ceilings that are put in place because somebody at some point in time thought, aha, you've got to have a master's degree to understand this. You really don't. You need to be able to speak to people first and foremost. And if you can't have a conversation with people, then this is not the career for you or it's not the career for you now. And for me, coming in 15 years in, um, actually, it gave me much more ability to change the business and to really remodel the organization and the bit around me. The, the, the position that I joined uh, was running a global program on cybercrime. There was no money in it and half a member of staff. And over the next four years, I've grown that to an annual budget of $70 million and 70 staff around the world. But that's because I recruit people who are smarter than me, who've got better experience than me, and who can give me the best advice. And I give them the space I hope to go and do their jobs without sitting on top of them, perhaps a little bit too much sometimes. And it's trying to get that balance right. But if you bring people in at a higher level, or if you join at a higher level, at a physically a higher level in the organization then your ability to just change the business to give advice to senior policymakers. i speak routinely to the secretary general in his office in new york you know twice a week and i wouldn't be doing that if i was as a p2 or a p3 i also wouldn't be doing it as a p5 if i hadn't had routine experience in my previous jobs of briefing heads of state and ministers or taking high high risk decisions in policing on if you're working on a terrorism case and you've got to take a decision which might result in the death of one ten a hundred thousand people if you screw it up all of that builds experience on taking critical decisions being comfortable in rapidly analyzing a situation and making a decision rather than just sitting on the fence and saying oh my god that's a bit risky i'm not going to take a decision i'll ask someone else I think most often people want to be led. Most people want to be led. So if you're the person who is comfortable with being led, by all means, come in at a little lower part in the career or earlier in your career. If you're the person who wants to lead, think carefully about whether you want to start at in your early to mid-20s or late-20s. Go and do something else that makes you a really appealing candidate and come in as a P5 or a D1 director level, because then the ability to shape an organization and give that vision, create that vision and take people with you is vastly, vastly easier. Yeah, there's there's a bit of a catch-22, because if you want to start, and one of the things that we kind of advise against is st don't try to go to New York, Brussels, Vienna from the onset, right? You do need this experience. Yep. Uh, and so one one option that they can pursue is, of course, you know, much like yourself, you work for an institution, your government, whatever, and then you laterally move over when you're mid-career. Or alternatively, you could also, you know, start in the field, mm -hmm. start in a mission and build that experience progressively over time. 
because as we know, it's also an issue of uh, career management at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think if you have that experience, um, I did a load of work in West Africa, which dealing with heads of state and dealing with organizational leaders, just seeing, getting the experience that I'm going out there from London with plenty of resources around me to do stuff and turning up in a country and understanding that, okay, you don't have fuel for your vehicles. We're thinking to take on this specific organized crime risk. You need, I don't know, wiretap capabilities, surveillance capability. You need gas. You need petrol. <laughs> That's the biggest thing. And understanding what are those societal impacts just, I think, makes you think differently and understand that we don't have the answers to everything and we're not supposed to either. And it's not supposed to be the big Western savior going into another country. It's quite the opposite. I have learned so much from people who are living in really difficult decisions, people trying to run agencies or governments where people are living on a couple of dollars a day or where there is a massive ecological risk from earthquakes or volcanoes or the crime rate is so high that your likelihood of death simply by going to work is significantly increased. That's where I've got my best advice from from people who are in that experience. It's not me going to tell them how to do their job better. They're telling me how to do my job better. And I think with that experience, you then hopefully become better at your own job and making decisions that are more likely to be reflective of the experience of others rather than thinking if, if I'm sitting in Vienna looking out the window or in UN towers here and thinking this is real life. No, it's not. This is a very comfortable life. I'm exceptionally lucky to live in a very safe country with great health care where I can come and do what I need to do and go home safely. Most of my staff around the world do not have that experience. Some of them have grown up in countries where they have been at an enormous risk from crime and security issues. Some have grown up as refugees. Some have grown up in war zones in the Balkans in the 90s. All of that stuff is experience that can help me to make better decisions. And it's, I think it's being able to be open to that, being comfortable, being wrong and being told that you're wrong. That's okay. And uh, I think it's all of that stuff. If you can build and gain that experience earlier in your career, and then you look at coming into us or you join the UN in a field position, do some of the more difficult, challenging posts where there are security risks, where you're going to the loo in a bucket, where there are, where there's no electricity for 18 hours, hours a day. Then you understand what real life is for so many more people around the world than you would ever possibly realize. But it's still a good experience, even though you're doing yeah, that. <laughs> absolutely. It's life affirming, right? If you go and you do that and you enjoy it, you think, actually, this is what I want to do. You'll come away and you will, your career will grow around that if that's what you want to do. And it doesn't necessarily mean going up there. There might be a ton of different lateral posts that you will love. And there is nothing wrong with doing. Not everybody has to be the boss. In fact, most people shouldn't be. We need people who are experts at doing this stuff day in, day out, on the ground, and are willing to go to those difficult, dangerous postings and to take that on around the world. And that's, I think that's the beauty of this organization. And that in, certainly in my staff based here, none of us are from the same country. None of us have the same background or experience. And that's just what I love about it because... I'll ask one of my staff from Uzbekistan, say, I'm thinking of doing this. How would that play out for you back home? And be told, actually, though, that would be a really stupid idea for these reasons that I would never have thought about. And it's, uh, I think that's what this place is about. Multilateralism is about trying to find 
those areas of peace and consensus in amongst all those different opinions, those different legislations, the different language and cultural background. And that when it works, it works really well. And when it doesn't, that's some of the challenges that we face in the world right now. Yeah, very interesting. So let's, um, as we're kind of we're starting to slowly run out of time here, but let's kind of hit on one point before we have to get off, which is career management. You know, we all know from the international community, it's often very difficult to plan a career, you know, because we start uh, by accident and then we, you know, you even mentioned if you see something that you find appealing, you would then jump again to another position. So what is your perspective on career management with international organizations having kind of living or you are, you're living through this experience today as we all are. Yeah. I think it's difficult from what I see right now. Um, the position I'm in now, there was a new section set up about a year and a half into me running the cybercrime program. And that was lovely that the bosses decided, actually, we want to move you in and actually set up a, its own department and take some other bits into it. Um, and that was one of those, you know, it's a great opportunity. It's a, lateral, it's a lateral move. You get no more money and a hell of a lot more stress. That's okay. That's the way it's supposed to work sometimes. Um, promotion gets more difficult the higher up you get uh, just there are physically smaller posts sometimes there is politics that comes into it as well that states will be lobbying for candidates of a certain uh, country or ethnicity we our biggest push right now in the un is to reach gender parity as soon as possible we're aiming for 2028 which sounds much longer than i think it ought to be but something i have to accept and i'm comfortable with is that the likelihood of a white European man getting promoted right now is very, very small. I'm on what's called a roster for the next grade up, so I've passed all the stuff for promotion, but I recognize that that is unlikely to be me and I'm comfortable with that because we won't reach gender or geographic um, parity by promoting people who look like me. So there is a major effort and I'm really happy in my bit of the business, we've got gender parity and we've done that within a year and a half. It isn't difficult. People keep saying, oh, it's really hard and it's unfair on men. It is not unfair on men, okay? We've had the good gig for the past 50 years. We've got a, there's a time where we have to make sure that we, uh, that we are reaching parity. And the way we do that, we're often criticized, or some of, the, some of the nonsense that I hear is, okay, well, you're only going to give this person a job because she's a woman. No, that's crap. But what we can do is make sure that the adverts that are going out for roles have gender neutral language in them. And there is a load of psychological research on unconscious bias in job adverts. And then the same goes for when we're recruiting, when we're interviewing, when we're hiring, that this is not about giving somebody a job because of the country they come from or their gender or their race. It's about making sure that those people see the advert in the first place and that we make sure that the experience we're asking for is asked for in a way that allows them and encourages them to apply. And there's nothing wrong in doing that. In fact, it's the right thing to do because so often I still see applicants that are going to be, for for any of the roles in my bit, that are principally white men from a Western background. And we had to look really critically at why weren't we getting applicants from Africa? We rarely had applicants from Africa or Southeast Asia or the Middle East from women especially, who we knew had jobs that were entirely relevant to coming in the door. And by setting up last year, we ran an event where we brought 100 women from around the world who work in terrorist financing and money laundering, getting them together in a room and saying, why aren't you applying for our jobs? Some of them weren't seeing the adverts, but there is a real male-female disparity here where women will want 
in women tend to seem to apply for jobs where they feel that they meet 80 percent of the of the, the requirements men we are much stupider and we will apply for stuff that we've got like 10 percent and say we can we can bluff the rest so that's where we need to change the language and the neutrality of the language and the adverts and the uh, in what we're asking for and all of that comes back to career planning where it makes it hard to plan careers in some ways but I guess if I take it away from saying I want to be in a certain post at a certain point of my career, it's making trying to make sure that my life stuff around this is ready to make that move if it comes up. Or we take the decision that now is not the time to do that. You know, uh, I said I think that I've got four kids and they're 10, 8, 6 and 3. There will come a point where probably a little bit of stability for a few years is what we'll require. Where that is, I don't know, it might be in Vienna, it might be somewhere else, but there are events that will impact on that. Um, I have now had cancer twice, had brain hemorrhages, pulmonary embolisms, I have a thing called Crohn's disease and colitis now. So I have to look at, if I was gonna to move to another post, I've gotta have a little bit of healthcare support around that, which, which means that I know I will not get medically cleared by my own organization to go to some countries. So all of that impacts on it as well, but, the ultimate in all of this, Colin, I've said that to certainly all of my staff, is whatever job you do, you have to love the job. If you don't love the job, get out of it because it will destroy you. You've got to love your job. If you're going to work thinking, oh, bloody hell, I don't want to go in today or I hate this, get out of it. You spend more time in your job than you do at home, than you do with girlfriend, boyfriend, mum, dad, brother, sister. You spend, I, certainly I do, but I'm, I'm a stupid workaholic who hasn't learned how to step back from that yet. But you really do. You, if you're going to spend time with people, you've got to like them. You don't have to be best friends, but you've got to enjoy working with the people around you. You've got to have passion for the job, for the organisation. And the moment that goes, the moment you start to think in your, in your heart, in your head, I don't really like this anymore. I don't really want to do this that's the time to start looking for something else because i've seen people who have stayed in jobs for 20 25 years uh, that they hate and by the end of it they're utterly despondent and that can have a real horrendous impact on on your own mental health so career planning is part of it but also in the un where it's one year contracts two years if you're having a particularly good day out planning all of this stuff where it's donor funded right now where we are financially in the worst situation the UN has ever been in trying to plan a career around that is almost impossible so you've got to be a little bit more relaxed about it and just take opportunities as they come up yeah thanks that's really helpful and I think one of the things that we talk about is the fact that you have to look at your own career your own self as a career right so you are managing yeah. your career you have to take it on board yourself. You know, the days are very much long gone where it was like I worked for somebody for 20 years. Uh, and that's, you might be able to do that in civil service, but maybe not so much these days anymore. Uh, that's still very quite, it's possible, but difficult. So last kind of 60 seconds here, you're sitting on boards, I'm sitting on boards. Uh, give me like the number one thing that you see when you're interviewing candidates that needs to be improved. Uh, the cover letter. For me, the cover letter is key. Um, I have, let's say, if, I've, if I'm advertising a post in Bangkok, I will get 200 applicants, probably, and I, I will make a decision about whether to take you further in the first five seconds of that cover letter. If you don't say in your cover letter that you meet or exceed the requirements of what I'm asking for, I'm not going to read it any further. 
I'll quickly scan, do you have it in your experience or your career history? But if you don't say it in the cover letter, I'm already losing trust that you actually have that. If you don't mention the job title in the cover letter, I know that you're trying to lie to me, that you don't have the experience in that, if you don't use any of the, that phraseology about it. So it is about grabbing my attention. I'm not sitting with a stack of stuff and, and, and taking 20 minutes or 30 minutes on each one. I wish I could, but that's not the way the business runs. So grab my attention. Don't tell me that you want to save the world and that the UN's amazing and you think everybody in it should, should get a sainthood. Tell me about you. Tell me you meet the criteria, that you have the experience that we're looking for. And that's got my attention. That will make me read the rest of it. On UN job applications, it often asks for professionalism. So it's looking at what you've done in the past, education or work experience, and uh, your, so your academia and languages. Just be really specific. Look at your career history and feed that back to me. This is a tick box exercise to get you to the next stage. We are not sitting there taking hours or days over, a set, over written applications. It's about getting those candidates who clearly have the experience and background that, that is in the job advert. So make it easy for us. Tell me if, if the job advert says you need to have five years experience in ABCDE with these language skills, Tell me you've got that. Tell me the first paragraph. I meet and exceed these, or I think my, if I remember my cover letter, it was with, with 12 years experience working internationally in drugs and crime investigations and international policy and with fluency in X, Y, Z, I, I exceed the, the requirements for the job. Fine, I've got the attention of the recruiter. Then go on from that and make sure that in your career history, whether it's two years or 10 years, each career bit that you're telling me about is addressing the points that we've advertised for. I don't care if you were the world's best Superman, you put your pants on outside your trousers and you flew out with a cape on. If that's not what we're looking to recruit, it doesn't matter. Just address the stuff that we're asking for and the rest of it you can bring out in an interview if you reach that point. Right. That's perfect. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today. It was uh, it is very, it was, yeah, it's great hearing your perspective and, and all that kind of knowledge is fantastic. So thank you very much. And if and, there's anybody uh, that's watching this, if they want to run anything past me at any point, they want some advice, more than happy if you put them in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Where can we find you? Let's talk about that. Uh, you can stalk me on Twitter. It's at Neil Walsh underscore UN and on LinkedIn, where there is a photo that looks like me about 30 years younger. Um, but it's just the past three years have really made me age, like my face melted. But you can find me there. Um, if I advertise a job, here's one for you. If I advertise a job and we regularly put them out on LinkedIn, do not send me a message telling me you have applied. Don't send me a message with your CV or application attached. I always say in the job advert, don't send me this stuff, and people always do. Read the instructions. If you haven't read the instructions, or you send me a message saying, how do I do this? I'm not sure where to find the career application information. You ain't right for the job, all right? It's all out there already. So read the instructions and exit through the gift shop. Yeah, following instructions is part of the test, right? So, <laughs> All right, thanks, Neil. Really appreciate oh, it. I know you got to go. All right, so we'll be in care. touch. Thanks. All best. Cheers.